and welcome to another episode of Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, our guest is Winifred Ade Yami, and she is with Africa Seen and Heard. In just a moment, she will be with us and share her story. In the meantime, remember that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll be right back with Winifred. This is Heartstock. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw the This is your host, Carol Murphy. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. And today, our guest is Winifred Ade Yemi. And she is the founder of Africa Seen and Heard. Hi, Winifred. How are you? Hi, Carol. I'm well today, although we're in a sweltering heat wave in London, the UK, but otherwise very well. Yes, we've been hearing about that. Um, I'm a an avid BBC listener. <laughs> we were just talking before recording here that last year, we too here in Montana was having a, a bit of a drought and uh, mm-hmm. lots of smoke from fires. And we've kind of had a, a entirely different summer this year. Thankfully, it's been absolutely gorgeous. There was some smoke in the air yesterday and some winds, but I think so far so good here. And thank you so much for for joining us from London and sharing your story. Can you give our listeners an intro? What is Africa Seen and Heard? And what impact is it that you're creating? Okay, so myself, Africa Seen and Heard is a creative and cultural consultancy. So myself personally, I'm a creative entrepreneur and a business development consultant. I'm based in London, in the United Kingdom. And currently my practice is more focused on culinary arts and innovation and supporting entrepreneurs here from minority ethnic backgrounds. So mainly I use my creative, cultural and intellectual knowledge and my wide industrial experience through running the consultancy and other businesses over the years to innovate my own projects. And I also develop business startups, entrepreneurs, and also work with established brands. I think it's very important, this work that I do and the impact that it has in supporting London's minority ethnic entrepreneurs and underrepresented communities and indigenous industries internationally. I mainly provide support and pathways for them to establish their enterprises and achieve economic prosperity. I also focus on sustainability and climate action, and I work to ensure the best use of resources, human capital, and preservation of natural environments. So we've also had an impact positive impact on working with some communities such as the Bodo community in the Niger Delta, as well as having economic projects. We also look at stemming irregular migration by giving employment opportunities and building industries in um, quite um, sometimes impoverished communities. Are you from London originally? Is that where you grew up? Um, yes, I grew up in London. So I'm Yoruba. So I have mainly Nigerian, part Brazilian and Sierra Leonean from Lagos Island. But I've grown up in London and in, I was born in Bristol, but grew up in London. So yeah, I'm a British African person, <laughs> I would say, yeah. And how about education? Can you 
tell us just a little bit about how that may have impacted where you find yourself today and and the work that you're doing? Okay, so my education, well, I would say, like we're looking at my influences, I believe, when we were looking at the first question. So, yeah, so speaking again about my family influences, my mother was brought up by a father who was the eldest son of Victorian father. So I had, I'm actually probably the fourth generation of my family that was brought up in the UK, although my generation was the first to be born here. So my great-grandfather studied at Edinburgh University in 1880. He was a doctor there. My grandfather also studied there in about the 1910s, 1920s. And my parents both came over in the 1960s. My dad, my mum in the 70s, both studying. So that's how I came to be born in Bristol, because they both studied there. Through my education, which started in Bristol at primary level, I've always been to um, Catholic schools. So I think that's given me a lot of my outlook on how I view doing some of the social good work that I do. So I started off my primary education in Bristol and a Catholic school, and I finished my secondary education at a convent school in Highgate in London. And then I went on to do a joint honours degree in economics and management at Middlesex University, which is in in London. Were you always interested in the arts and were you always a creative person? Um, yeah, I say, I guess I have always been interested in the arts and natural living from quite a young age. I think growing up in Bristol, which was quite ahead of its time in terms of the holistic lifestyle and sustainability. I grew up, you know, with pets as a child, with lots of plants around in the garden. And, you know, I was quite close to nature. I've always grown up with an interest in fine art. So my father was a design engineer. So he was more in print, designing print machines. So he really loved the whole golden ratio of art. So I grew up, had a little art deco, all of my furniture was art deco in my room as a child. And I would just sort of love looking at the grain of the wood and how things were constructed. That was always explained to me from a very early age. I grew up in quite a literary home, quite intellectual home. You know, my parents' friends were mainly other professionals. So it was always something that was spoken of. And I was always encouraged to, you know, with my dad's profession, there was always lots of paper, wonderful pens, lots of materials around. So I was always had the time to kind of discover, draw quite a big library at home. So I was very interested in botanical art, funnily enough, from a young age. I was always very interested in sculpture, went to a lot of museums and galleries as a child. So I think it's, it's quite a big part of me. You just kind of absorb and have that perspective how you look at the world. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's always been more of a creative director <laughs> rather than sometimes producing. I think the culinary art has always been my thing. I've always loved cooking from a very early age, but working with fine artists, I've always been more of a muse to some artists and more of a creative director, say if it's been in jewelry or other kinds of production. But for me, my art that I love and I'm particularly talented at would be the culinary arts. So I'm curious, at what point was Africa seen and heard, uh, created and started in what came before that in your life? Um, Africa seen and heard, I founded it in 2011. And the core mission of that was to provide a positive platform that acknowledged and promoted the diverse creative and cultural wealth of Africa and the global diaspora. That came about because, you know, Africa is the heartbeat of so many nations. When you look at it in terms of the new world the Americas, you know, the Caribbean, and they have so many diaspora communities around the world that have created many different impacts, whether it's in terms of things that have been invented or, you know, music, art, um, art sports, so many things. 
So it was really about um, bringing a lot of things together and having that acknowledgement, which wasn't always seen. The mission of Africa Seen and Heard evolved over the years to encompass more global concerns. And I worked across diverse industrial sectors in the UK, in aesthetics, architecture, hospitality, and then internationally, where I've advised more with agricultural product projects and in fine art and a lot of things in between. So, um, yeah, it's had a lot of different impacts and worked in different industries. And at the minute, I'm sort of refining my business model and my own personal mission. So I've just liked to keep things simple and focus on a few of my favorite causes and subject matters that I have most expertise in and that people are asking for my skills in now. I'm seeing it's going in certain directions. So that's where I'm headed right now. So prior to 2011, what did you do and how did that kind of equip you for what was coming ahead once you founded Africa Seen and Heard? Okay, so I've always been quite entrepreneurial from quite a young age. And after I left business school, I did mainly work as an entrepreneur and a consultant, had a lot of diverse experiences and industries that I worked in. And I'd say those that I learned from the most, that most positively prepared me for where I'm at now, was mainly in natural and organic products, um, the luxury brands, agriculture, and some manufacturing. And also worked in fine art and corporate communications. So I also had a newspaper column. I've ghostwritten books for other people. I did one on British migration, which has prepared me for a lot of the work that I'm doing now in the more of the diversity and inclusion. And I've also sat on a few charitable boards in the UK. Some of those were to do with education and um, just property management as well. Mm. So in your early years, you mentioned growing up there in Bristol. How have you seen, uh, you know, this is kind of a historical question, and I'm always curious comparing how things are in the United States to your experiences there in Great Britain. How have you th seen things changing over time in relation to diversity and inclusion. You know, we've had quite a lot of excitement here in the U.S. around that, those issues. Largely, I would, I would have to say, kind of brought on by a combination of Trump being our president and the pandemic hitting and just various sundry events how does that compare to what, what you've seen over time there in the UK? I think Bristol and London are very different. So Bristol was had a very historic, it, it was a very major capital with the enslavement trade because a lot of money was, you know, went to Bristol. You look at the merchants that live there. It was, it's, it's got its own unique way. I would say that diversity has changed a lot. So when I grew up in Bristol, it was mainly white English. My nanny was white English, so I, and I kind of know that community just very well. It was very Jamaican. There weren't that many Africans. So myself being from an African um, background, there weren't that many. So it was mainly black, which would have been Jamaican, white English. And that would have been based on social classes, actually more sort of segregated than it would be in London, because London is a place where everybody lives together. It's not like in America. So you might have a house with a street with a house worth 20 million pounds and around the corner there would be what would be a housing project we all live very much together if we're not going to private schools everybody knows each other so i would say in bristol now there is a lot more diversity of people that are, that are living there where before it was more kind of monocultural in some areas um we have a mayor in bristol now it was mixed race bristol always had a very large mixed race population 
at the time that I knew it. And in the UK now, the mixed race is the fastest growing population, not just black and white, but many. So every year, it's interesting to see what our next census looks like, because between the 20, 2001 and 2011 census, the mixed race population doubled. And I think it probably may have, it's definitely grown <laughs> since the one we did in 2021. I would say in the UK, as we speak in business and social terms, there are, there are sort of still um, disparities and barriers, discrimination, etc. But I think on the whole, people kind of do get along. London is very multicultural. It's quite diverse. It's quite inclusive, you know, where you live. You're not, all, you know, it's, it's quite a place where people do mix quite a lot. We don't have some of the same barriers in terms of where people would live as it may be in America. Of course, there is, you know, finance allows people to move and make certain opportunities in their life, whether it's in education, where they live and what they invest their money in. I would say, yeah, of course, there's still um, work to be done, but I think it really depends on how you're brought up socially, I guess. And that can be financially as well as ethnically. I think in London, I see there's more homogeneity based on, you know, people's economics more than them being divided by race. That, that's my experience of the London that I live in. I can't say that to everyone. I, have, I guess I have relative privilege where I've grown up, the opportunities that I've had. But I would say in terms of my own community where I live, it is very diverse and there are not so many barriers as there may be for other people. Hmm. So yeah, I can't, I can't speak to everyone. I can speak from my own experience. So we're going to take our break here in just a moment. We will be back with Winifred Adeyemi and uh, learn more about uh, her enterprise. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio, and today our guest is Winifred Adeyemi. And she's been sharing with us her experiences growing up in the UK. And I'd really like to delve in now to Africa Seen and Heard. What is the pain point that you're trying to impact or solve for why do we need Africa Seen and Heard? Well, I would say, if I break it into two points, I would say Seen and Heard in terms of the unrepresented groups that I've worked with. So, for example, more on the philanthropic edge, I've done a lot of work with MOSOP, which is the movement for the survival of the Gomi people. I've worked with them since 2015. You may be very well aware of the oil spill in the Niger Delta, where the whole place, the ecosystem, is completely destroyed by crude oil pollution which we all have a complicity in as we're using petroleum products around the world. So um, a lot of their livelihoods were destroyed by this oil spill, the aquaculture, agriculture, that's all gone. So I'm working quite closely with them at the moment to look at alternative crops and also encouraging them to be more involved in dynamic agroforestry. 
So that's a part that I'm doing a lot of work in now. I think that creates an impact in improving their quality of life because there's a lot of benzene in the groundwater. So people there that drink the water, they have a high incidence of birth defects in the children there. The, the mortality rate is a lot lower, the life expectancy. So I would say what I do in that regard of assisting them to find alternative means of living and remediating rather than waiting for the um, compensation, which sometimes takes a long time to come, looking at different ways that they can do sort of soilless farming. And also we have been helping them with their turmeric. So we're just waiting for them to bring the turmeric, which is organically grown to market and export. So right now I'm looking at how that can be taken into other countries. And then also in the longer term, be brought to a high enough rate that it could be used for pharmaceutical product, products as well. Now in the UK, at the moment, as I've said, I'm kind of redirecting my some of my operations, but I'm working a lot to support minority ethnic entrepreneurs to develop their businesses in early stages. So at the moment, one that I'm working with is a Colombian lady who's making really amazing um, ice cream. It's called Palette Art, and she's from Colombia. So I'm assisting her at the moment to help raise her profile. She's actually doing a festival. So in the United Kingdom, it's not like in America. The Latin American community is relatively small and quite invisible. So in terms of helping to promote the culture and the fact that the people that are living here, that they are a part of our multicultural city, I'm very excited about working with that. And I've also got some diplomatic support for that because we're also showing the trade of the products, whether it's the flavors that she's using that supports the trade between the countries obviously helping to support them as entrepreneurs to grow their business. As I've said, I'm also doing a lot in culinary arts. So with that, I've worked with chefs and other brands. So I'm looking more, focusing more on the mixology going forward. So I found that to be a lot easier in terms of the hospitality industry has not fully recovered in terms of staff since the pandemic. So where it was quite difficult when I was working with chefs to actually have the staff and build, I found that with the mixology, that's just using my know-how and my innovation of formulas working with brands to develop their markets and also tell a story. So that's something that I'm very much interested in. And I was just at the National Geographic Traveller Food Festival at the weekend and connecting with a lot of brands that I'm going to collaborate with and the week before that at the Imbibe Live. So with that, I'm taking looking at the impact of sustainable production. So I'm working more with brands that are doing, you know, sort of circular economy in terms of the raw ingredients that they're using, their packaging being sustainable, some of them are B Corp and just doing a lot for climate action. So I think that for me is something that I'm really interested in and I'm really enjoying seeing that there are so many entrepreneurs now with their new businesses and that the mainstream business that's been established is actually now looking at having more sustainable impact and championing climate action in their um, everyday business. So I noticed that you had mentioned, I believe it was on LinkedIn, I saw that you have a partner center for Black and African arts and civilization. Yes. Can you kind yes. of share with us how, you, how you're partnering with them and if there are any other partners that you'd like to mention? Okay, so I started off with that. Um, so that organization is the parastatal of the Ministry of Information and Culture in Nigeria. And I, I began my relationship with them when I was on the board of directors of um, a charity in London when we invited them over to do an exhibition in, when was that, about 20, 2008 or nine. 
So I've worked with them in the past more in terms of cultural diplomacy, which is part of the mission that I have of Africa Seen and Heard, just raising awareness of um, the arts and civilization. And then also I would be looking at developing scholarly and scientific ties between them and other institutions. Um, I've been asked to work more with the gastro diplomacy side. So for me now, where I'm focusing my practice on food, that's something I would like to do. So I think when we look at some of the areas of intangible heritage in Africa, we have jollof rice, we have other dishes, you know, Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee. So I hope to sort of champion the gastro side because I think that food is always the first handle on a culture. And if we look at the final frontiers in terms of global food, Africa is a really unexplored um, place in terms of cuisine and um, things to be enjoyed. So like where you are in North America, some of you know your rice culture in the Carolinas, that was mainly brought about by the specific enslaved peoples that came from the rice coast around Sierra Leone. And I know even you're growing your old strain of Carolina gold rice. So there's a lot of opportunity for cultural exchange through the medium of food and also transmission of know-how in terms of agriculture. So for me, that's one of the areas I'm going to be focusing on more. And they also had the Festac 77, which was a great festival in 1977. So this year will be the 45th anniversary. And at that time, countries from all of the global African diaspora, even the indigenous people of Australia came along. We had Gilberto Gil came around from um, Brazil. I think um, part of the Africobra artistic movement in Chicago, such as Wadsworth Jarrell were there. So it was really great to see support them bringing that back to the fore and i hope that um, the united states will be quite prominent in supporting and being visible when they do their celebration and i'm wondering about funding there's kind of a a two-sided question here one is your own funding for africa seen and heard and just generally speaking you know there's been a big push here in the u.s to increase awareness around lack of funding, both for folks of color and specifically women in general, and even more women of color and the lack of funding that's available for the kind of enterprises that you're helping and promoting. Mm-hmm. So I would say mainly, I mean, in the in the UK, I think there was a, a survey in 2020 that found that like less than 0.25% of venture capital funding goes to Black-led startups in the UK. And I think only 38 Black founders received venture capital funding in the last decade. So there is a a real mismatch. Personally, myself, I was lucky enough that I could fund my business through my own consultancy work. And that means I would grow, maybe not at a pace that I could have grown at if I had. I myself am not someone who would really like to ever look at taking on debt. So I've just worked on projects. So say, for example... When I did the Gleaner Archive collection, I, I curated the, that as an exhibition for them. So the fees that I had from that, I used to launch my business and have my event and my auction with Christie's. So I've always been quite lucky that I've been able to fund it, self-fund it. And if need be, I've been lucky to have Bank of My Parents that have helped me out when I've needed it too. I think we are seeing now a big push towards supporting more people of colour, or specifically black people and black women. So I think the money is seen to be put in the most responsible hands. So I know that, say, for example, there are a lot of investment banks that have got programs where they've given that money. I'd say uh, Goldman Sachs is one I know has done that and have seen good returns on this. I think, yeah, there can be a lot of barriers, which is why I sometimes still help some people pro bono like I'm doing at the moment, because I can see where they're going. And some people just need a little bit of a helping hand to go forward. 
I find here in the UK, most people that I'm seeing that have a startup brand usually are funding themselves. So there are a lot of people here in the UK who may be professional people that have a good job and they have their business, which you might call more of a side hustle. They may not want to take the leap to leave their job to fund the business because obviously they have their costs of living, et cetera, but they're growing their businesses incrementally. So they're entrepreneurs that I've sort of mentored or, or spoken to that I may onboard as clients who, for example, maybe took the money they'd saved as a house deposit and that's what they put into their business, for example, to start making a, a drink product or to do a first run of fashion or whatever. So people are taking that risk themselves. I know, for example, here in the UK, if you looked at my blog and the book I spoke on writing of the migration, for example, I would give this as an example because it is in the public domain, but here in the UK, we have an entrepreneur, his name's Edward Johnston, and he set up a very successful Jamaican patty company for food manufacturing. And when he wanted to get a loan, the bank even made him put up his own collateral. And this is someone who probably had an asset that could be secured against. It's very difficult, I find, for a lot of people to sometimes um, get the support. But nowadays, we see a lot of people are using things like crowdfunding or, you know, they're making their own personal sacrifices from their savings. But I think this is something that needs to change and looks to be changing with, you know, now there have been um, reports or studies into, you know, the um, disparate nature of credit that's available or loans that are available for business startups. I'm seeing this start to change. Obviously, it takes time to trickle down, but I think in the long run, um, people have sort of developed a resilience and are more likely to um, fund themselves or work with others. But I think this is changing for the positive. So we have probably about two minutes left, and I'm hoping you can maybe share something you're excited about for the future. You've done this a little bit already. And then how folks might find you as well. Okay, so... What I'm most excited about at the moment, I'm waiting for my turmeric <laughs> to get here because I have some products that I'm looking at doing and I have got a lot of response from a country in Europe that's interested in tasting this product. So I just needed to get here. So that's something I'm quite excited about. That should be happening later in the year because the president of that company is here at the moment. So when he goes back in a couple of months, he'll get his latest harvest and hopefully his NAFDAQ registration is ready. So I'm very excited about that. Um, yeah, I'm also excited about the festival because that helps us to promote some of the more Latin American community here and just great to have everybody have a platform for their businesses. For myself, I am on Twitter and Instagram, social media platforms, and my handle there is at Africa, scene, S-E-E-N-H-E-A-R-D, Africa Scene Heard. So you'll learn a lot more about me and what I do from there. And, you know, it's quite cool on the Instagram. We've got a lot of very illustrative of day-to-day life and different projects and some of the entrepreneurs I work with. So it's there for you all to see around the world. Yes. And I noticed that there's some fabulous historical references there of different artists and activities um, from the past, which is really, really kind of journalistic in in nature and, and very, very nice. Yes, the Twitter is even more so. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I like to always look at the through, like for me, I look at the like life requiring aesthetic lens and I think looking at history of the past, the present and the future, there's so much that we can learn and that enriches our lives each day. And I think that's a great appeal that we have with our followers. We have a lot from America, more on the Twitter, 
So it's always been great to show them a different window on the world and, and learn from them too. Indeedy. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your story here on Heartstock. I know I feel very enriched and I appreciate that. And thank you for the invitation. Indeed. I really value the opportunity to share with you. Oh, yeah, indeed. And thank you. So, as usual, we shall be back next week. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And we've been speaking with Winifred Ade Yemi. We'll see you next week. Peace. As I went walking, I saw Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via livestream at butteamericaradio.org. Yeah,